I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is Professor Nasima Karim from the University of Pretoria's Human Resource Management Department. Her research interests include diversity management, specifically topics related to culture, religion, gender and management, identity and intersectionality. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Amalia. To begin with, in this series, we are exploring some psychology aspects surrounding real or perceived barriers that women experience at work as well as on the home front. You've been involved with several studies locally and with counterparts in different countries exploring some of these issues, which I'd like to unpack further in the program. Okay. So, for instance, one of your studies explored ethnic identity work in which Indian parents engage with regard to allowing their daughters to pursue tertiary education and a career, which grapples with the conflict between traditional roles and modern roles. Mm. Can you share some of your findings? Okay, uh, what I basically did was that um, I looked at uh, the women's past, the Indian women's past, basically where they grew up during the apartheid era. And one of the things that came out is that uh, they grew up in insulated environments. So what happened in those particular environments was that uh, they had to toe the line. They had to follow cultural values and people were very strict. The community was very strict. Families were very strict. They wouldn't allow the daughters, uh, you know, to go out and work because they felt it will compromise their respectability in it. But that was before 1994. After democracy, uh, a lot more opportunities arose for Indian females in terms of careers and in terms of work opportunities as well. And then we saw a lot of um, an influx, uh, you know, of foreign people coming into the country and that. So automatically now, um, in the like uh, before, during the apartheid era, there wasn't really that need for women to go out and work because, uh, you know, one breadwinner sufficed. And most of their parents, um, especially their fathers and brothers, were involved in businesses. So there wasn't really a need for women to go and work. It was only the women who were poverty-stricken who went out to work. So this speaks to identities and roles in family and yes. community. Yes. A and then after uh, the democratic elections in 1984, due to the many opportunities that were available now, they were not restricted to certain careers in that women started pursuing different careers and more uh, Indian females started entering tertiary institutions and they started getting jobs in organizations as well at different levels. And that is how Indian parents now um, were in this situation where uh, on the one hand they had to grapple with their ethnic identity of um, and especially their cultural identity of allowing their daughters now their freedom to pursue careers and uh, to pursue uh, you know further education so what parents did was you know they looked around in society and said but there are other parents also within our communities who are sending their daughters out to study and to work in that and uh, somehow the norms within the society change but um, what I found in my study was that mothers still had to uphold uh, traditional values in that 
you know, daughters had to still abide with certain cultural values of respectability to maintain their respectability of being an Indian female. So would you say this is almost... In the past, they had a traditional path to follow, yes. had traditional expectations. Yeah. Now, in the, the present and the future, they have to comply with those traditional expectations and mm. take on a modern role. And exactly. And that is where the ethnic identity work comes into play. It's, uh, now they are negotiating their ethnic and cultural identities. To what extent do we follow uh, uh, modern roles, Western values in it, and to what extent... Uh, do we hang on to our cultural values? So that is the identity work that parents engage in. Having done that, how are the findings? Is there still this this conflict? Well, um, within the Indian society, it's very diverse because you have uh, some, you know, families that are extremely now westernized in it, and on the other hand, you find people who are ultra conservative. Uh, you know, they now prepared to send their daughters out to work or even to pursue tertiary education. Uh, so those women are basically housewives. They stay at home and see to the children. They don't even go out to work in that. And on the other hand, you see the ultra-modern people, the girls dress in a Western way. They don't abide so much to cultural values as well. So, And then you get the moderates, you know, the in-betweeners, where, yes, a part of your cultural values are abided to, but then you also incorporate certain Western values. So um, you cannot say all Indian people are the same. Uh, there are differences. Uh, you know, they're not a homogeneous group anymore. Whereas in the past, it was more like uh, you cannot just go out to work and to study in that uh, because there were a lot of restrictions uh, on the careers that Indian women could follow. Mm. And this also seems to be moving away from collectivism towards individualism. Yes, exactly. And uh, you, you do get, uh, you know, husbands within the Indian community who still expect the women to be more traditional. So um, I would use the word biculturalism. Uh, they are basically operating in two different cultures. In the workplace, it's more Western culture. And when they go back to their homes, it's more uh, a traditional culture. Mm. So being comfortable with wearing two hats. Two hats, yeah. <laughs> And that leads me nicely into the next question that I wanted to, to ask you, which taps really into this biculturalism. Mm. You did another study on gender and cultural identity where you investigated Indian female breadwinners and cultural power in the family with mm. the conclusion that being the financial breadwinner actually has no bearing on who's got the power in the home, mm. which for me seems like the perfect example of double standards. Yes, it's true. Now I agree with you because uh, a lot of women say, especially women managers, they got so much of power within the workplace, you know. They take decisions on their own. Um, they uh, have people who follow them. They are leaders in the workplace. And yet when they come to their homes, in a lot of um, communities, so uh, parents are very traditional, and especially mothers. A lot of the women that I interviewed had actually lost their fathers. So they automatically became breadwinners because the traditional, some of the traditional values within the Indian society and communities is also changing. These women found that their brothers were not prepared to become breadwinners within their natal homes because um, they had their own homes to cater to. Uh, a lot of them had moved into their own homes with their wives and children in it. So they didn't have the financial means to become breadwinners in their natal homes. And the women automatically assume these roles. 
but somehow you know when it came to the community and extended family as well women don't really have power uh, w- within that environment although they have so much of power in the workplace and they kind of like uh, leads to a lot of stress and anxiety within the women uh, yeah how do they navigate that okay uh, what they did was they resisted a lot uh, in terms of like um, uh, you know the brothers would have power in the home mothers would ask uh, brothers uh, you know to take certain decisions in it but when um, when the brothers would ask the women to like um, do things that they were not comfortable they would resist and not actually listen to what the brothers have to say they became quite independent thinkers so although these roles are traditional but at the same time uh, the women resisted those traditional roles as well where they could and where they could assert themselves and assert power over their brothers and the rest of the family members they would do so especially when it came to the finances within the home well they're the people yeah. that are bringing the income exactly yeah over time do you Mm. predict that that is going to to change that that power ratio is going to shift more mm-hmm. towards women who are breadwinners um yeah i believe so because i think um a, a lot of the younger people that i have interviewed especially the males a lot of them say that their wives are working if you look at um uh, the generation that was born just after the baby boomers generation x men are, uh, tend to be more traditional but gen y they more egalitarian even in a traditional society uh, the men in the, the the men that i interviewed the younger males now in the indian society in that so plus minus what age are we we talking uh, we talking about late 20s uh, early 30s yeah uh, what they said is that uh, in a fast they would their parents would never have thought especially their fathers would never have thought of changing a baby's diaper but they do it and when they go to their parents homes the parents ask them especially the fathers would ask the sons well, why are you changing the diaper you know and he said no you know they would say things like my wife and i we got this understanding when it's my turn i will change the diaper but you still get men in that age group who would say we would assist our wives in the homes but when we get visitors then we burden our wives with all the work so there are still those who are afraid of uh, showing their feminine side they are moving towards more egalitarian relationships but you still get those who are more traditional who feel ashamed of uh, showing their feminine side uh, because they get teased by friends and uh, you know they they don't want to show that they are assisting their wives in their homes and it's such mm. a bizarre concept what what is yeah. wrong with assisting your your spouse or your partner yeah exactly but uh, but i think it's a way we socialized we socialized uh, in terms of uh, traditional values in that and, and when somebody does that it's kind of like you a sissy you know they would say you a sissy why are you doing housework that is, leave it to the woman so it's a kind of a thing you know yeah they get teased yeah globally women around the world mm. undertake most of the the unpaid labor but unpaid labor is mm. essential for running households economies you've got to have exactly. the cooking done the cleaning looking yes. after the children mm. and i saw some stats from un women mm. which indicated that women carry out two and a half times more unpaid housework mm. and care work yes. than men yeah but as a result of doing that it means mm. they've got less time to participate in paid labor yes or to work longer hours mm. and being able to incorporate this this balance mm. how do you think we can 
get a better distribution of mm. of the payload between yeah. partners. Yeah, uh, I think that also um, stems from socialization. Um, some of the women that I interviewed, they said that they force their sons to do housework and they force their sons to learn how to cook. And their husbands, they have this understanding with their husbands that, uh, you know what, this boy is going to do exactly what the daughters are going to do. And I think a lot depends on parents, how we raise our children. Because once uh, a set of, like, say, for example, all the neighbors, 10 neighbors, start teaching their children that, and then it spreads within society. And I think the media has a lot, uh, a big role to play here as well. If we can show, like on television and in movies and that, that men are also assisting women, especially if you get a big star like Tom Cruise, you know, showing that he can do housework and cook and clean and that, uh, then, uh, you know, all other people who, like, kind of want to be like Tom Cruise, I think will also follow that route. So I think the media has a major role to play. Parents have a major role to play. And then even our schooling system, we shouldn't, uh, you know, divide the causes or the subjects that uh, males should pursue and females should pursue. You know, teach uh, men cookery, for example. Everything, this thing depends on how we are socialized from a very young age. And if, you can, if we can change the mindset of, of the next generation, I think we will have more egalitarian relationships. And I think in terms of unpaid labor, it, it will be more equally balanced. So it's about putting those right values and, and principles yes. at the onset. Mm-hmm. Something which I must say has, has puzzled me when I look at the extent of, mm-hmm. of gender violence that we experience mm-hmm. in South mm-hmm. Africa. And going to this point of the fact that we've got so many households that are run by women, headed up by women. Mm-hmm. Women have been there, in fact, the, the sole provider, um, whether mm. it is emotional support, financial support for their children, her values are imprinted on them. We've got the whole socialization mm. aspect. And I just would really like to understand what happens in society. What is that point where mm. a young person mm-hmm. changes their views and we end up with discrimination against women or we end up with violence against mm. women? Uh, sometimes I think we are our biggest enemies because uh, we tend to perpetuate our own uh, subservient roles as well. You know, in the homes, uh, if a son wants something, for example, um, you cook um, chicken today and he doesn't feel for chicken, the mother will immediately say, my son, what can I cook for you? And then he will say, I want uh, a steak. And she will go out there and do it. Instead of teaching him, listen, I'm a woman, you learn to respect me. If I cook something... You don't complain at all. And I think that is why I say we are our biggest enemies because we are perpetuating uh, this uh, form of discrimination against women. We teach our sons that, yes, it is okay to abuse a woman. We need to teach them it is not okay to abuse a woman. If you want, for example, um, a sandwich, get up and go and do it for yourself. Don't come and ask me because I am now relaxing. You know, mm. it, it is evening, I am tired. So I think we as mothers also and as sisters and daughters, we need to um, inculcate certain values in our sons. And I think then that mindset will change as well. That, you know, a woman is not somebody you walk over all over. She's not your doormat. She is somebody that you need to respect, to treat with dignity, and you need to be good towards a woman. 
and I think that comes from the home as well. And looking mm. at how you've you've done that as a, as a distinction with an example on respect, on mm. I'd say almost like the different layers of where respect mm. qualifies. Going towards women in the workplace again, mm-hmm. uh, and it taps into aspects of, of being the financial breadwinner. Mm. There really is a vacuum of, of women as we move up the career ladders, particularly mm. in the business world, in corporate South Africa, at senior management, according to Business Women's Association of South Africa's 2015 census on JSC-listed companies, women only accounted for 29% of executive managers, mm. 21% of directors, 9% of chairpersons, and 2% of CEOs. Mm. And this is something that always puzzles me when I consider that women represent over 50% of the South African population. But yet, when we look towards higher ranks in Mm. the career spectrum, they're Mm. severely underrepresented. Mm. From my study, what I found is that these individual factors that impede women from moving up the organizational hierarchy and some of the things are our own culture you know we think culture doesn't play a big role in our lives but we don't leave our cultures when we enter the organization we carry our cultural baggage with us so things like sometimes traditional cultures will teach you that women uh, need to be subservient they need to uh, place other people ahead of themselves Um, they need to work hard I mean working hard is a good uh, a good value but at the same time we are not taught to network men are very good networkers I mean when I interviewed the women in my study one of the things that they said is that some of their uh, subordinates bypass them in terms of um, moving up the career ladder and the reason was that they network with other males now we need to teach our daughters how to network as well network in a good way to get ahead in your career as well because it's not only the hard work or the quality of your work that gets you ahead, but it's this networking as well, which is very important. And that also speaks to organizational culture and the cohesion yes. of mm. the, the way the rule, rules of the game. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, you need to be able, when you walk into an organization and when you're working there, like for the first two, three months, you need to be able to study, uh, you know, the dynamics within that organizational culture. What is happening there? who is important, who you need to liaise with, who you need to speak to. And then at the same time, um, women also need to, uh, you know, uh, sometimes they place, especially women who are married, they place their families ahead of their careers. Uh, in one organization, I interviewed women and they said, when you get your first baby, the men start, you know, uh, getting a bit nervous. When you get your second baby, it's like, they already see you as you're not um, management material because now you're going to pay too much of attention to your family. And most of the women who get ahead in their careers are single women because they prepare to work longer hours. If you are visible in the workplace and you work until 9, 10 o'clock at night, that is how the men perceive, male managers perceive you as hardworking and somebody who is ambitious. You as a married woman, you leave 5 o'clock in the evening because you know you need to see to your kids and that even if you work from nine o'clock at night till about two o'clock in the morning every every night it's not something that they see so they perceive you as oh you're too focused on your home and your family 
you're not focused on your career. So they want to make sure and they want to see women in the workplace working till late. If they feel if I as a male can work till late, why can't she work till late? These perceptions and the yes. fact that if he is working in the workplace, yeah. his wife is at home taking care exactly. of the family. And that's, yes. that's almost his mental mode and view of yes. what married women should be doing. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and the thing is that that is where the egalitarian relationship uh, come in. Because what I learned from my study is that women who outsource cooking, who outsource childcare, um, are able to progress much faster in to much higher levels compared to women who are more traditional, who want to take care of their homes, their families, who, who place their husband's careers ahead of their own careers, and who are not willing to relocate. You know, there's another stumbling block. If a company asks you, will you, for example, go and work in the Cape province? You know, we need to send you to the Cape province to go and work. Women are not willing to do that. And men are not willing to go with their wives, uh, you know, to another province to work. Because now their careers take precedence. And a woman's career is always secondary. Mm. I, I'm hearing the double standards coming exactly. through again and yeah. again. Also, in the value of what you're saying is I, mm. I think that women are being taught the wrong things. Yeah, it's true. Mm. So what, given the work that you, you've done, what, what mm. kind of recommendations need to happen? Is this something that happens at school, at university, or is there an induction program that should be incorporated mm. into work policies? Uh, the thing is that uh, it is very complicated. It's not that, uh, you know, we, we cannot have ready-made solutions. Each case has to be looked at individually because only you in that situation know what it's all about. If you're a married woman, you know for a fact, if you come from a traditional society, sometimes it's not only your husband you need to take care of, it's your in-laws as well. You can live in a nuclear home, but you always got this extended family you have to take care of. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think you've got to decide early in your career. I, is it my family I'm going to pay attention to or is it my career? Because a lot of the women, a lot of the high flyers also, um, you know, were criticized by the extended families uh, for not taking care of their children, not taking care of their homes or their husbands because they were so uh, driven in terms of their careers. It almost seems whichever route you take, you're mm. going to be wrong. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I also found like certain women would say, but you know what, I am happy to stagnate in middle management because I'm comfortable here. I can go home, see to my family. My husband is pursuing his career and he's a high flyer. So I'm happy with that. So it was a conscious choice for some women. It's a conscious choice, yeah. So the thing is, we can have as many programs as we want to. But ultimately, it will depend on your circumstances as a woman. Do you want to be that high-fly woman? Then you will definitely make some sacrifices because there were women who couldn't get married. They were in very high positions in that, and they couldn't get married in the Indian society because um, they said they, their values and the Indian male's values clash, basically, because they were very independent. Uh, they didn't. Some of them didn't have time for housework, you know, to look after, take care of children, to cook in that. So they would say, okay, would you be willing to take over the responsibility of the children in cooking in it as well? And a lot of the men don't want to do that because it's a traditional society. Um, and then there are other Indian males who are prepared to do that. 
uh, you know, to assist their wives so that their wives can also advance in their careers. Mm. I think it's a fascinating topic and there clearly is no one set solution on this. Something else which I I picked up that I I found very interesting, I know Mm. that uh, your your studies have been focused on the Indian community. And from a South African point of view, we talk about unity. We mm. talk about coming together and uh, mm. unifying under a, a particular culture. Mm. But our society is not homogenous. No, it isn't. It, it, this, surely this ideal is, is just yes. too far-fetched to, yeah. to be a reality? Yes, it's true. The thing is that we should actually celebrate our diversity, uh, you know, our differences in it. And we should learn to... I always tell my students and... Um, uh, you know, when I go to conferences and I do my presentations and that, that uh, we shouldn't try and box in people. We we shouldn't make them like us. We should actually embrace their difference. A- and I think that is what makes diversity work. It's not to place everybody in boxes and say, you are like this, you are like this, and you've got to become like me. No. Let them practice, uh, you know, their religious beliefs and cultures and that and learn to respect that and embrace it within the workplace and within society as well. And I think once you can see the person for who they are and learn to respect them and embrace their difference in that, it becomes so much easier then to get along with people. But the minute you try and make somebody, if I have to try and make somebody like me, that person becomes frustrated because I am not you. I haven't been raised like you. I want to be me. We all have different identities. And there are certain core identities which we cannot change. It has, that change has to come from within the individual. And I think the minute you touch that core identity and try and change it, there is that resistance and there is that identity work that goes with it. And, and wouldn't yeah. you say you almost have an identity crisis? crisis. Because this is exactly. the person that you have believed yourself to be. These are the ideals, yes. the values. Yeah. And here's someone else providing a, a different context, a different frame of reference, exactly. which is foreign to you. Exactly. But telling yeah. telling you that you're wrong mm. and they're right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the thing is, that's where all the problems also come with w- women's management style as well. You know, sometimes they criticize uh, for being, uh, you know, um, being too soft and not hard like men and that. But it's a different style and it works in a lot of situations. It's not to say it's a wrong style. It's just a different way of doing things. So I think uh, the way women lead as well. I mean, if you look at it, women are leaders in the home as well. The children are raised basically by women. So if they can be leaders in the home, why can't they be leaders in the workplace? It is just coming with a different perspective. And, and there is something that men need to see, that we need to embrace the way a woman leads. Because in a lot of situations, it's a good way of leading. Socialization, I think, is one aspect mm. which would be, and works well when people are young. Yes. Because you're mm. almost, I don't want to say brainwashing them, but molding yes, them molding and their, mm. their frame of reference. Mm. But as you get older, Yes. How do you then introduce more female management styles and get acceptance and traction? Uh, I think, you know, uh, a lot of times what we do is, and that's where we fail, I believe, we have all these uh, causes for women leaders, but we don't include the men. 
we we need to get the male perspective as well so if you have a course on uh, how to enhance uh, women's leadership styles in it or uh, you know women's leader- leadership where, where to what's what's the next step you've got to include male managers so that they know the what women's leadership is exactly and the thing is then at least uh, you can open up uh, that space for a lot of discussions to take place why women do things the way they do we need to understand women can never be men and men can never be women we are we are complementing each other men are different women are different yes there are certain similarities in that but when you put the two together it makes a perfect unit and why can't that perfect unit coexist within the workplace as well if it can coexist in a family and in society why can it not coexist in the workplace uh, if you look um, at uh, women the the careers they pursue in that from uh, from the time they in school to university and there is no real gender discrimination uh, in terms of the educational level and that a woman can get a phd a male can get a phd she can go into engineering male but the minute we enter the workplace and this is where all the problems start and i think to a certain extent men are also trying to kind of um uh, you know uh, they kind of like that is a male domain men are perceived to be like breadwinners from the beginning of time so as a breadwinner i think they are looked on more favorably by other males as well so a male would rather fa- uh, favor a male and not a female um and and rather promote a male compared to a female because they feel this might be the breadwinner in the home a female's income is i think looked at as secondary not is a breadwinner uh, you know income and, and that is why a lot of times men have better opportunities compared to women within the workplace and, and that is our perceptions again a lot of things depend on the way we perceive things so i think it's also important that male managers should go into the um, background of their female uh, employees as well you know in find out are they the breadwinners are they not but Karim uh, mm. whether you're a breadwinner or not mm. if you are doing the same job yes. as your male counterpart mm. you're doing the same job yes, you're I producing the, the mm. performance the yes. outputs mm. so you should be compensated exactly the same yes yeah but it doesn't happen in the workplace and yeah. we've got legislation mm. as well i think it was either 2014 or 2015 there was a revision in terms of yes equal pay but yeah. mm. is the onus then um on on women to prove that they're not being paid equally how how do you know because mm. salaries tend to be confidential people yes. don't really talk about no. what they're earning yeah and on that point should it mm. not become the company's responsibility to say because they know who's mm. earning w- whatever amount it is mm. and say consciously mm-hmm. yes we are now going to level the playing field mm. yeah I, i think in government circles it's more the playing field is more level in terms of um, pay differentials in it but in the in the private sector it's more of a challenge and it's not only a challenge in south africa it's a worldwide challenge where you find that men automatically get paid much higher compared to women mm-hmm. now there is a movie that i show my students you know 
where women uh, go in this lady she wants to buy a car and a man wants to buy a car automatically the salesperson gives the male a much better deal compared to the woman and uh, and you know what it doesn't only happen in a workplace it's out there in society as well and i think women le- need to learn to be more assertive in to um be able to negotiate better better salaries in it uh, i think women tend to be uh, you know whatever we given we tend to accept that this is okay and, and even if you go out there and looking for another job and that you want to change jobs you don't necessarily have to show your salary your previous salary advice uh, you know you need to tell that particular individual that uh, you know what i will i want a uh, the the thing i, I want to be paid what is market related and then negotiate in terms of that but the minute you show them your salary advice from your previous job and you're earning much less than the market value you obviously are devaluing yourself so then you get penalized again mm. for yes. the rest of your your future because your future. of coming off of a low low exactly. base exactly yeah Today we're talking to Professor Nasima Karim from the University of Pretoria's Human Resource Management Department. Prof Karim, we're coming to the end of the show now, and mm. one question that I'd like to ask is about your personal journey in terms of some of the factors that you feel have contributed to your success. Okay. Okay, let me start with uh, growing up. I I grew up um, in a small town basically. but i um from the time i started school right up until the end of my journey my school journey in that um i made sure i remained in the top 3 in class you know and performance and performance was very important to me and i always wanted to make a success of my life uh, i was very ambitious from a very young age so i um completed my schooling came to university when i started university there were very few indian females pursuing careers and i completed my undergraduate studies and then my postgraduate studies and while i was uh, completing my masters um i was at the university of pretoria and also working in human resource management and after completing my masters i was promoted to a hr manager uh, in my previous position and because i did so well at my masters i passed the cum laude my university professors approached me and said please come and work at the university and this was like more than 10 years ago anyway we negotiated like basically for 2 years in it and eventually i came to the university i never in my wildest dream thought i would one day be an academic i always thought you know i would be this high flyer hr manager and i got to middle management and then they brought me over to the university they kind of persuaded me and i am at the university of pretoria now for the past 10 years I completed my PhD in 2012. All the time, you know, uh, I told myself why I did my PhD as well was because I wanted to ki- kind of complete that cycle or that circle of um, academia. And what getting to the top and getting to the top, yeah. And, and I think one of the things that drives me is my ambition and also I persevere. I don't just give up easily. Uh, and I think there is something um if you want to be at the top and get to the top you got to really work hard and you got to persevere don't ever give up on your dreams no. those are mm. really important characteristics and who would you say have been some of the strong women in your life oh i must say the strongest woman in my life was my mom 
sometimes when you know I found things difficult and I just wanted to give up and she would say no don't ever give up just go for it and she always said you know what until you don't try you will never know whether you can do it or not what if you try and you succeed and, and that is what kept me motivated there were times when I was really frustrated doing the PhD and working and everything like sometimes you just feel so overwhelmed you know by all the workload in you know all the problems at work and that and you just got to kind of juggle everything and motivate yourself and yeah i have my mom who always said no don't ever give up why don't you do this why don't you do that and she would encourage me you know to do things i haven't even thought of doing and i think she's one of the women who really motivated me in my life it wasn't for my mother a lot of the things that i have achieved today i wouldn't have been able to achieve and i think every a uh, woman needs a mother who is strong who, who is there to encourage her uh, my mother's housewife i mean she's never been out in the world of work she doesn't even know what the expectations are but being a housewife she was you know in the background always pushing me to better myself and mm-hmm. lastly as we close out today could yeah. you please share a few words of motivation or inspiration that yes. you'd like to pass on to young ladies listening to us okay the, the thing that got me through is i always believe it is better to have tried and to have failed than to never have tried at all failure is just a beginning and not the end of a journey always be true to yourself be your authentic self and when you are your authentic self that is the way you succeed Mm-hmm. true power thank you thank you so much for joining us today it's been a pleasure having you on air and digging deeper in terms of some of the the psychology behind discriminating factors that still affect women today mm. thank you for having me on your show you have been listening to womanity woman in unity on channel africa the african perspective and we have been talking to professor nasima karim from the university of pretoria's human resource management department